Thank you very much for your kind invitation to join you for worship this morning. This is the second time I've been here on a Sunday morning. Last year, after three months when it didn't rain, I came and enjoyed worship, and then we had lunch. And do you know what I saw through the window as lunch was just coming to an end? Some rain. And I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> Unfortunately... <laughs> Unfortunately, by the time I got to Thornbury, which is between here and Bristol where we live, the rain stopped. I still went on praising, but praying for more rain. The second occasion, of course, is St. Swithin's Day, when, uh, according to that cunningly devised fable, if it were fine all day today, we might not have any rain for the next 40 if it rained today, it would rain through the Olympic Games. I don't know that St. Swithin thought about that. It would rain, wouldn't it, uh, through the Olympic Games for 40 days. But, of course, we changed from one calendar to another in 1752, and so the 15th of July cannot possibly be the real day of St. Swithin's. Enough of introduction. Thank you very much for your kind welcome. One of the verses that we have just sung in that hymn, I'd like to read to you again. We lose what on ourselves we spend. We have a treasure without end. Whatever, Lord, to you we lend, you give us all. And Roger asked me to say something about the last few verses of Acts chapter 4, and the account of Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of Acts chapter 5 as part of a series that I understand you're doing in the Acts of the Apostles. And it seems to me that between those last verses of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5, there is a huge contrast. We have attitudes and actions leading to great happiness in the first part of that and to great unhappiness in the second part of that. And I thought we might call part of what we say pooling, pooling their resources. They shared everything they had. And then the second part of our thoughts might be called plotting. How could you, Ananias and Sapphira, plot together in defiance of God? Now, I believe that evangelical addresses are normally supposed to have three points. So, if we start with pooling and continue with plotting, the third one we'll call perhaps. Perhaps we shall have time for that, perhaps we shan't, and we'll see. I'm well aware that a speaker on a Sunday morning is competing with automatic ovens, which have probably, no, there's my watch, which have probably just come on now, so we'll see how we go. This first passage at the end of chapter 4, I think, is very exciting. The heading in the New International Version is, The Believers Share Their Possessions. We read that they were all of one heart and one mind. I take that to mean that they loved each other. They loved each other in Christ. They were of one mind, of one purpose, which was to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
By now, some 5,000 men had been added to the church on the day of Pentecost and soon after, and the church was growing. It was all exciting. People were being saved by the day. They loved each other. They had a common purpose. And with great power, they continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was with them all. And they shared everything. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So, not only did they love each other, not only did they have one purpose in preaching the gospel, not only were they dynamic in the power of the Holy Spirit, but they shared everything. Sooner after I um, left university, I came under the influence of a dear, godly old vicar. And one day he and I were talking about the difference between Christianity and communism. What those two things had, or supposed to have, in common was sharing. And he said, this is the difference. And I, have, I, I can't forget it all these years, nearly 50 years uh, ago since he said this to me. He said, when it comes to Christianity, it's brother, share what is mine. When it comes to communism, it says, comrade, share with me what is yours. And there does seem to be, to be a great truth about that. They shared everything in the love that they had of the Lord Jesus. And um, we, we read that uh, in, in the Old Testament, in the ideal state in Deuteronomy chapter 15, that there should be no poor among the community of God's people. And here we read in the New Testament, in this fourth chapter of Acts, that there was no one who had need. Because if anybody was short of resources, there was sharing and giving together. And they continued with grace and power. It's interesting that the word um, great power and the word much grace is the same in the original language. We get the word mega from it. There was mega power and mega grace. And it reminds me of my favorite verse in the New Testament, I in the Bible indeed. If I were to ask everybody for their favorite verse, well, those automatic ovens would certainly um, go nuts, wouldn't they? But here is mine. Consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he who was poor became, that he who was rich became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be rich. And it would seem to me that that is the Christian ethic and the Christian dynamic of those early believers in this fourth chapter of the Acts. That just as Jesus, who was rich, had become poor, in order that others who were poor might become rich, so they shared their possessions. Another favorite verse of mine is in the chapter after that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 
God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. And going back to the earlier chapter, see that you excel, says Paul to the church at Corinth, see that you excel in the grace of giving. Is this grace generosity, I wonder? Well, I think to some extent it is. I think it might mean more than that. J.B. Phillips paraphrases one of the verses in our passage as this. A wonderful spirit of generosity pervaded the whole church. Or it might be broader than that, that it's God's sustaining grace, that God is good, that God answers prayer, that God loves us, that God wants us to be of one heart and mind. And then into the narrative comes a mysterious figure from Cyprus. His name was actually Joseph, and he was Jewish. He was of the tribe of Levi, but he was so full of encouragement that he was given the nickname Barnabas, which apparently means son of encouragement. And he owned a field in Cyprus. And when he sold that field, he brought the money from the proceeds and he placed it at the feet of the apostles so that everybody could share from the benefit of what had been his. He gave so that all might have. Now, I found it surprising that a Levite should own property because in the old economy, the other tribes contributed to the Levites because they didn't own property. F.F. Bruce uh, takes this up and he says that perhaps that had um, been overtaken by events. But what I wonder is this, perhaps Barnabas, when he became a Christian, realized that if he was to be true to the old principles of being a Levite and to his new faith of being a Christian, he should sell that land and bring the proceeds and place them humbly at the feet of the apostles. And that is exactly what he did. He placed the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. That gift was sacrificial. It was a capital asset, and he sold it. It was also humble. He placed himself at the feet of the apostles, and he gave the proceeds of sale of that land in Cyprus. It occurs to me that if anybody goes to Cyprus, their hotel might, of course, be built on that particular field. I don't know. I have been to Cyprus once, but I didn't see any sign saying Barnabas, sorry, Joseph lived here. <coughs> so much for uh, what we might call pooling. Now, what about plotting? Plotting. If the gift of Barnabas was humble and sacrificial, that of Ananias and Sapphira was ostentatious and deceitful. I'm not quite sure, actually, which of these three possibilities is right. Ananias owned some land. 
Sapphira owned some land, or Ananias and Sapphira owned the land. My suspicion is that it was just Ananias who owned the land, and that his wife said to him, as though she were a sort of Lady Macbeth figure, you remember that Lady Macbeth was responsible for much of the mischief that her husband got up to. I'm not drawing any general conclusions from that, but I just wonder if uh, Sophia was a sort of Lady Macbeth figure. She said to him, and he said to her, when this land is sold, we'll give most of the proceeds to the apostles, but we'll keep some back for ourselves. And that's what happened. Now, as Peter, the apostle, said, it was entirely open to them to give or not to give, to retain or not to retain. But what went wrong was that they made out that they were giving it all, that their giving was deceitful. And Peter said to them, how could you lie? How could you lie to God in the matter of giving? How could you think that you were deceiving him? Yes, you wanted to be seen to be generous, but actually you weren't generous at all. And um, under that word, Ananias was struck down and died and his body was carried away and surprisingly, within two hours, he was buried. And then Lady Mac, sorry, Sophia comes onto the, onto the scene. Malcolm is dead, Banco is dead, yes. Uh, she, she, she comes onto the, onto the scene, and Peter says to her, you know that land that was sold? Did you give all the proceeds of sale to the apostles? Yes, she said. Yes, we did. And Peter said, well, actually, of course, we know that you didn't. What a pity that the two of you agreed, you and your husband agreed, and the word that is translated agreed is the word from which we get sympathy. They were, it's as though they were two parts of an orchestra in harmony with each other in their deceit and their hypocrisy. Um, how can you have agreed like that? To deceive the Lord, to deceive the people, to lie in that deceitful way. She didn't know that her husband had died, but she died too, and her body was also carried away. Now I've tried to tell the story, and I wonder what conclusions we should draw from that story. Here's a verse from the epistle of James. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, in whom there is no shadow or turning. It's interesting to me that though there are two words actually for uh, giving. 
One is the act of giving, which is described as good, and the other is the gift itself, which is described as perfect. And what uh, James is telling us, I think, is that every giving that is good, every gift that is perfect, comes from above. The character of God is good. The character of God is light. The character of God doesn't change. There is no variableness, no shadow of turning with him. And when he gives, a gift is good and a gift is perfect. Now I'm going to take time out for a moment or two to tell you an episode of which I'm ashamed. The Bible does say that we're supposed to confess our sins one to another. That doesn't mean that I believe in auricular confession, as some Christians think of it, but here's what happened. I have a brother who, with his wife, lived in Plymouth. We live in Bristol. And every year, we used to meet with them at the end of November, and at about the time my father had died, in remembrance of our father, and we would give each other a present for Christmas. We would put in our car what came from David, and David and Sarah, his wife, would put in their car what we intended them to have at Christmas. And one year, we opened what we'd had from my brother, and it was a cake stand. Well, nothing wrong with uh, cake stands, but um, I think they're a bit out of fashion because tea parties and cucumber sandwiches are also somewhat dated and out of fashion, aren't they? But, all right, but it was grotesque. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. Um, I don't think, well, I mean, I, I can't say that I've ever been to an exhibition of cake stands, but if I had, I think this would have come right at the bottom of the pile. Of course, I wrote a letter of, what shall I say, flowery prose and fulsome praise, saying thank you so much for that lovely cake stand that you gave us at Christmas. But what on earth were we to do with the wretched thing? A few months later, I saw a perfect opportunity to dispose of the dreaded cake stand. Because down the road from us is a lady who was deputy head of a school. And she told us that they were having a parents' association fate to raise money for the school. Oh, I said, would you allow us the privilege of contributing to your funds? If, if we were to give you something, do you think it might be sold? Or one of the parents might take it and put some money into the funds. She said, that's very, very kind of you. Oh, I said, right, well, we, we've got a rather special cake stand we'd like you to have. <laughs> and, oh, she said, that's so generous of you. What a lovely cake stand. What a lovely thought. And how glad she would be to have the funds from the Parent Teachers Association at their fate. Now, See what I mean? I don't think that, uh, although I'm uh, to some extent embarrassed to have to confess my sins in open forum like that, um, the motive was wrong. We were giving something that had cost us nothing and that we didn't want. 
And our mode and spirit of giving was entirely foreign to that of God who gives grace from above, from the place of light, that every gift and every giving is perfect. Our gift and our motive were both imperfect. And so, in fact, I think I, I may dare to say on a broader scale and more seriously, was the gift of Ananias and Sapphira. It's interesting that the word that is used of keeping back for uh, when Peter said to uh, An Ananias, um, you've, you've kept some back. Uh, you have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. That word can be used of stealing and embezzlement. It's the word that is also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament about Achan, who after the fall of Jericho hid some treasures in his tent. And as a result of that, uh, it's as though God withheld his blessing. And when Ai should have been easy for the people of God to take, it wasn't, because they were out of fellowship with God through the wickedness of Achan, who kept something back for himself. He said, I saw a rather fine coat. I saw some rather nice silver. I liked the look of that two kilograms, whatever it was, of gold. And I hid them in my tent. And they're hidden now in the tent. And that's why the blessing was withheld. That was why um, AI was not taken. And when one person sinned like that, the, the, the fellowship, the spirit, the outreach of all the people was adversely affected. It was like a cancer in the body that is the church. And the same word is used in the Septuagint of stealing as is used here in Acts chapter 4 for keeping back for um, yourself, and the only other time it's used in the Bible is in Titus chapter 2, where slaves are exhorted to honor their masters so far as they can and not to pinch anything off them. That is the meaning, apparently, of this word. Now, I had wondered whether we might get to uh, perhaps. And actually, um, I've got for you as I close, a different P. We've had pooling, we've had plotting, and my third P is not perhaps, but Proverbs. And I'd like just as I close to read to you a few verses from the 11th chapter of Proverbs. And I think if you listen carefully to this as we consider it together, uh, perhaps without too much comment from me, you will see that both uh, the pooling and the plotting are represented in what we read. Proverbs 11, verse 1. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, 
but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Wealth is worthless on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way for them, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. When a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expects from his power comes to nothing. And then later on in that chapter, verse 24, one man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And as you, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters in this church, seek to build the Abbey Center, and I'm hoping that if all is well, you will invite Pat, my wife, and me to the opening ceremony, and that um, although I shall be drawing my pension, that I shan't have reached too many more landmarks in my life before that happened. As you prepare for that, I wonder what the motivation will be of your giving and your planning, whether you'll be like Barnabas or whether you'll be like Ananias and Sapphira whether perhaps the spirit of Jesus will characterize what you do and what you give. He who was rich became poor, that those who are poor might become rich. Thank you for listening so patiently to the word of God.